Maybe two miracles happened today. Jesus rose from the dead and I preach a short sermon. You believe that? Thankful you came today. So good to see you. We had a great turnout yesterday. Thankful for all uh, the people who put forth effort. Our whole parking lot was full of kids. 1,500 eggs. Can you imagine how many pieces of candy paper were all over their houses? So we asked them all to forgive us. But anyway, we had a great time. The resurrection of Jesus, that's why we're here. We've been studying a series of messages on the last few passages in each of the Gospels. We've looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and today we're looking at John. I want to pick out one particular story because all across America and around the world, there's a great tradition that people do on Easter morning. And what happens is the pastor or the speaker gets up and he says, He is risen. And the con see, I mean, see, you all know that. So he is risen. He is risen Good. So, but this morning I want to talk to you about a man who, when when somebody said he is risen, and the other people started to say he's risen indeed, he stood up and said, "I won't believe him unless I see him, and I won't even believe him if I see him. I want to take my finger and stick in the nails of his hands and his side." And unless I do that, I will not believe. Now, I want to give you some great comfort this morning. Maybe you came today and you don't believe. Good. You ever hear anybody say that? Good. Jesus never shamed people who doubted who he was. He didn't shame them. Instead, he appeared to them and he gave them evidence and if they were willing to believe, he changed their life. And that's exactly what he does today. So I would have you turn in God's word to John chapter 20 this morning as we look at the story of Jesus and Thomas. The message is entitled, Blessed for Believing and Not Seeing. Blessed for Believing and Not Seeing. Did you know that John's gospel is the only book out of 66 that is actually written for an unbeliever. Now, hear me carefully. Every other book in the Bible is written to believers. The Gospel of John is unique in that it is written as an apologetic, as an explanation, so that people who do not believe in Jesus can come to know him and have eternal life. As a matter of fact, it's very clear in John's Gospel that this is the main purpose of this book. Listen to what John writes at the end of this resurrection appearance to Thomas. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. No other book in the Bible is written as an apologetic, as a defense of who Jesus is so clearly that it explains to you that if you will believe on him, you will have eternal life. I mean, this is the greatest little message that God ever entrusted to us. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to give money. You don't have to stop cussing. You don't have to stop drinking and smoking and chewing, ladies, if y'all do that. You don't have to do any of that. 
There is one condition for eternal life, and that is the fact that you believe on Jesus, God in flesh, who died on the cross for your sins, and he gives unto you eternal life as a free gift of God's grace, and he expects absolutely nothing, are you listening? Nothing on your part in return. You don't do anything to earn eternal life. It's a gift of God by his grace, not of works, so that no man can boast. It's the greatest message God ever gave us, and we complicate it so much. Forgive the church and pastors for complicating this. We do a great job at confusing people. God is so clear. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of his hand. Nobody. Now, we like to add rules and regulations, and if you don't do this, and you don't do that, and this, that, and Listen to me. There's one condition for eternal life, believing. And this is what Jesus was going to explain to his disciples. And about this time... You know, the first day of the week, John chapter 20, there was plenty of evidence. And this is what John lays out here in this chapter. You can go read it all later. I don't want to read the whole thing to you. But basically, he lays it out in two sections. Verses 1 through 10 to 11, he gives material evidence of Jesus' resurrection. I'm going to read them very quick. I didn't put them on the screen, but just very quickly... Listen to what he says. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who would be John who wrote this book, the one to whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not want to go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here's the picture. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. The stone was moved not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. They go, they see this cocoon-looking stature. No one had cut the cloth. It's laying there, and a body had came out of the cocoon. And then the face cloth, which was a special cloth that was wrapped around his head, was untouched and yet put in a separate place, and there was no one could explain what happened. By the way, folks, hear me carefully. If Christianity could have ever, ever been ceased, it would have been done so in the first century when Jesus rose. All they had to do was produce his body. Christianity would have been done. But listen to me, they couldn't produce a body because you can't find a risen Savior. But I want you to know something. There is material evidence for Jesus' resurrection. What is that? Nobody was found. There was undisturbed grave clothes. The stone was taken away, 
and a prophecy was fulfilled. Back in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus told them, destroy this temple, pointing to himself, and in three days I will rise again. Destroy it and I will rise. All kinds of material evidence. If you're a doubter, you should buy the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was a skeptic, an atheist. He did not believe Jesus rose from the dead. So he did one thing. He went on a mission to prove that Jesus was not who he said he was and that he didn't rise from the dead. And he was a researcher, by the way, very intellectual man. As he went about doing his interviews, his study, his research, all the way back into the first century, he concludes with this statement, there's more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily than the fact that Julius Caesar ever lived. Josh McDowell, while trying to prove that Jesus was a farce, ended up believing on him for eternal life, and today he's a worldwide apologetic evangelist. God changed his life. The issue is not about evidence, whether there's evidence. The issue is about belief versus unbelief, the hardness of the heart. So Jesus appeared to the doubters. And then notice the second section in John chapter 20. Here are the personal appearances of Jesus. Now, by the way, I listed these throughout the New Testament for you. I'm going to put them up on the screen, and I'm going to read this one section about Thomas, okay? Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came early on Sunday morning, okay? Uh, Sunday night. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. By the way, Jesus showed the disciples three places on his body that were pierced. Did you know that? Where was he pierced? In his wrists, where they nailed him. In his sides, where the Roman centurion stuck him with a sword. And did you know that in Luke, Luke tells us that he actually showed them his feet? He's the only writer that says Jesus showed them his feet. Because normally they would turn someone sideways on the cross and drive a spike through both heels to hold them onto the cross. So his hands, his side, and his feet were all visible to his disciples that he, in fact, was the crucified Jesus they saw on the cross. But Thomas said, after seeing him on that cross and the butchering he went through when he died, I will not believe he rose unless I stick my fingers in his wounds. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Did you catch that? Even though the doors were locked. I mean, they were scared for their life. They had the doors locked and barred and all of a sudden, poof, Jesus appears right in their midst. Resurrected, glorified body. The only person in heaven and earth that has a glorified body. No one else has it. Jesus only. We're next. We're next. Well, I've got one person here with me this morning anyway. <laughs> me and him are very glad that we're next. Uh, the rest of you will be too. Now, let me say, after Thomas, 
even though the doors were locked and Jesus came in and stood among them, this is what he said to them. Shame on you. Is that what he said? Shame on you. Where were you at? How can you believe? No. Listen. Shalom. Peace be unto you. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, can't you get this picture? Eleven disciples in the room. Peace be to you. Looks right dead at Thomas. And then he says, I wasn't here, but I heard you. As a matter of fact, I was here and I heard you. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and stick it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now folks, can you imagine? Can you imagine being there and the risen, resurrected Jesus coming to a doubter personally and saying, it's fine, I understand. But if you want to know if I, it's really me, go ahead. And then stop your disbelieving, but believe. You know, Thomas is only recorded as saying two things in Scripture. One is in John chapter 11, after Jesus was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, and people said, if you go there, Lord, they're going to kill you. And he said, I'm going anyway. And he said, well, let us go and die with him. That's the first statement. The second statement Thomas has ever recorded, I will not believe unless I see and put my fingers. Isn't that interesting? Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, The Lord of me and the God of me. My Lord and my God. This is what they used to say to Caesar in the Roman world, and he turned it around and said it of Jesus, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus says these remarkable words, which is the title of my message today, and I want you to listen closely. Did you realize this morning that you are more blessed not to have seen the resurrected Jesus than they were who saw him? Listen to what he says. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. A special blessing on those of us who take his word and believe on him for eternal life and believe that he is in fact our Lord and Savior and is coming back for us. A special blessing is bestowed upon us who do not see him. Wow. What a reward one day. Now, let me give you some personal evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Peter and John discover the missing body. Mary Magdalene meets Jesus on the way. Jesus appears to the eleven minus Thomas, and then he appears to Thomas personally. Now, folks, that's pretty good evidence, okay? Notice the times that Jesus appears in Scripture. He appears to individuals, to, to small groups, and large groups. I listed them on the screen. Are you ready? Are you an evidence person? Here we go. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, Peter, James, Stephen at his stoning, Paul, the Apostle Paul at his conversion, Paul at Corinth, Paul in the temple, Paul later in Jerusalem, Paul on another occasion, and John on the Isle of Patmos. That, that was the individuals. That's quite a track record there. 
He also appeared to small groups. He appeared to the women who were returning from the tomb, Cleophas and a friend, we read about that last week, ten disciples in Jerusalem, eleven disciples, he appeared to seven disciples in Galilee, and then the apostles on the Mount of Olives. But one of the greatest appearances is recorded in 1 Corinthians, one of the largest groups he ever appeared to. He appeared to more than 500 select believers at one time. Now, I've said this over and over. If we were putting this on evidence in a courtroom trial, could you imagine having all these witnesses come forward and say, I saw him, I saw him. Y'all want me to do that 500 times? No, you don't. But if you have ever said in a courtroom testimony, eyewitness testimony is the most powerful testimony there is. But also in the book of Acts, it's very clear that Jesus didn't appear to just everybody. I mean, you know, if I were doing this, I would have went right straight to Herod and Pontius Pilate and said, look here, Jack, I told you I was king and now I'm going to show you. Wouldn't you have done that? And then I would have appeared to all the scoffers and all the people that did something bad, and I would have told them, yeah, well, let me tell you something, that time is coming, but that's not how God did it. He appeared to select disciples who he had chosen and he had picked that he wanted to see him. It's the mystery of God. God is mysterious, folks. Never think you can figure him out. When you think you have God figured out, he's got something in store for you. You will not figure him out. And by the way, we will never get bored with God through eternity. All throughout eternity, we will be amazed at the wonder and the incredible intelligence of the God of the Bible. We will never know everything, but we will learn and learn new things about God throughout all eternity. Thomas, this one particular man, learned a great lesson about Jesus. And I want to give you six very quick. Are you ready? Six lessons about Jesus' appearance to Thomas. Lesson number one, Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. If there was ever a time that he would have ever walked away from somebody, this is one perfect opportunity because there were two men there who were heathen. One was Thomas, who doubted and scoffed, and the other was Peter, who denied him three times and even cussed on the last time. I told you I didn't know that man, blank, blank, don't ask me again. Scared to death. It's amazing what we will do to preserve our own hide, isn't it? And that's what they did. They were doubters. They were skeptics. And you would think that, that Jesus would have withdrawn from them and said, I could never use somebody like that. Not so. Instead, when he appeared, he came straight to Thomas, put your hand in here, then he went straight to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He wants a personal relationship with you too. You know, you may be running in your life thinking, oh, I've got my life figured out or I have no clue what my life is all about. Do you know what he's doing? God is speaking to you if you can listen to him. And he's trying to show you that he has a better way for your life than you do. And that God can help you, not just in this life, but in the eternal life. 
And he wants to do that. And the only way God can have a relationship with us is through his son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross, was buried, and rose again for us. And we have to put our personal trust and faith in him. But he wants a relationship with you. There's a second lesson that we learn, and that's this, that Jesus meets us where we are, especially, especially when we're struggling with our faith. So many people struggle with this, even Christians. Let, let me be honest with you. When you study and you live life and you try to reconcile things that happen in this crazy life and you tell me you never have doubts, I don't believe you. You're living your life for the Lord and all of a sudden something crazy happens in your family. And you cannot explain why something like this would happen. And you say, God, if you are all-powerful and you are all good, how can you allow something like this to happen in my life? I mean, I love you, I'm trying to serve you, I'm trying to do what's right, and God doesn't answer you. And you say to yourself, well, if he doesn't answer me, then that means he doesn't exist. Oh, no, friend. That doesn't mean that at all. He is answering. You just have to wait for the answer. And he is building something in us that we don't understand. And you are not going to figure God out. God is not the square of opposition in logic. The greatest fallacy of applying logic to God is you're not going to figure him out on the square. Because God is not that way. He is mysterious. And do you know the interesting thing? is that even while you're in the midst of that wandering and questioning and doubting and struggling, he is right there waiting to answer your question if you will honestly come to him. God is willing. Are we? That is the greatest question. Thomas is a perfect example that God meets us right where we are. Jesus met him right where he was. Can I tell you an embarrassing story about my life? This is shameful on my part. I've often told you many times, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be here listening to me. And if I knew who you were, I wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> but I was a young man, and a guy came to me to witness to me and share about Jesus. I happened to be doing something I shouldn't have been doing, and this guy made me so mad when he wanted to talk to me about Jesus that I took what was in my hand and threw it in the floorboard and told him to shut up. I never want to hear about him again. Don't talk to me. Yeah, I see some of y'all looking at me going, you did that? Now, I want to tell you something. I have never forgot that man trying to witness to me and I have never forgotten my response. I would have thought to myself, had I been God, I would have sent a lightning bolt out of third heaven right then. I would have made a big hole right out of me. But I am thankful that God in his grace and patience and mercy was willing to take a stubborn, ignorant young man and wait on him. And in just the right time, in God's grace and mercy... He opened my eyes to the truth that he loved me and I was lost and dead in my sin and needed a Savior. 
And he opened my heart to the truth and I believed the gospel. And God saved my soul. Don't, don't ask me to explain all the details. Of how it, The new birth is miraculous. But that happened. And God wants to do the same to you. And he comes to us in our struggles and our doubts. A third lesson we learn is this, and let it sink in. A moment of weakness should not permanently define who you are. You know, we like to call Thomas Doubting Thomas. Can I tell you something? Thank God for Thomas. At least he was honest enough to say how he felt. You know, a lot of Christians, we won't. We're afraid, oh my goodness, if someone knew how I really felt, oh, they would doubt that I was even a Christian. Oh, if, you know, I mean, on and on go our excuses. Thomas just lays it out and says, if I can't stick my finger, I'll never believe. Thank goodness for a man. It's refreshing to hear honesty like that. And sometimes in the Christian life, if somebody's honest with us, we start thinking we have to answer all their questions and fix all their problems. Let me tell you something. I can't do that for you. And the person sitting beside you can't do that for you. Nobody else. But there is one person who can do that for you. You ready? His name is Jesus. And if you're willing to take your doubts and your questions and honestly go before him and seek him honestly, he'll answer your questions. One of the greatest challenges someone ever shared with me was this. In this book, the Gospel of John, they said... I dare you to read through this book five times answering the following questions. Number one, who do people say Jesus is? And number two, who does Jesus say he is? And they said, I dare you to read through this book and answer those two questions and then come back and talk to me. And by the way, if you're doubting, I dare you. I dare you. Who do people say Jesus is and who does Jesus say he is in the Gospel of John? And when you finish it, come talk to me. But you know, just because we go through our life and have moments, that doesn't define us. I had a moment. I've had several moments. Have you? And I am so thankful that I'm not defined by those moments. Thomas today is not doubting Thomas. Thomas is believing Thomas. You know, church history says that he went off into a far place and died a martyr for Jesus. Thomas was not afraid. He was willing to give his life. He was not defined the rest of his life by doubting Thomas. He was a disciple and a follower and a believer on Jesus. A fourth lesson, there's a special blessing pronounced on those who believe who have not seen Jesus. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, we often call the Beatitudes. Blessed are, those, blessed are the meek, blessed are the this, that, and the other. There's also a blessed for those who believe but haven't seen. Now, I'm not here to debate whether or not you've seen Jesus or not in the resurrected form. I'm not even going to get into that. If you have, good, but you've missed your blessing. You had it when you saw him. But Jesus says this, Thomas, you believe because you saw me. But blessed are those who take me on my word and believe who I am and have not seen me. I have never seen Jesus. I've never seen him. 
in his resurrected form. Never seen him. But I'm going to. Because he's my Savior and he died for my sin. He rose again. He lives. And you know what God's Word said? He's coming again. And the next time we see him, we'll meet him and we'll be with him forever. He has a great plan. And then, Jesus has a purpose for your life. Did you know that this morning? Jesus had a purpose for Thomas. He has a purpose for you. So stop worrying about what he's doing in someone else's life or what he's not doing, and instead focus on what he's doing with you. Now, where do I get this from? After Jesus appeared, he came to John and Peter, and he was talking to them. And he started talking to Peter, and he said, you know, there's coming a day when you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted to, but after you believe in me, you're going to go where I tell you. And somebody else is going to dress you, and you're not going to like it. Well, Peter didn't like that. And he started sitting there thinking for a minute, and he looked over at John, and I'm sure John was going, ooh, ooh, yeah. And Peter said, what about him? Watch what Jesus says. Peter turned around and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John the writer, he said to Jesus, what about that man? Lord, why are you doing this to me and not to him? Lord, why do I have to go through this? And She doesn't have to go through that. Why does this have to happen to me, but, but, but not this terrible person down the road? You ready for this? Jesus says, Peter, you follow me. Don't worry about him or her or them. You follow me. And this is his message to us today. What he does in your life is different than what he's doing in my life. And how he handles things with you is different with how he handles things with me. We have to be in such a personal relationship with him that we're willing to accept what he gives to us individually and stop trying to receive what he does in everybody else's life. Manage our own. And then finally, no one, and by the way, this is a very practical point, no one knows who we really are until we're willing to show them our scars. You know, this is amazing about our Lord. He could have chosen never to have shown His scars. But do you know what He did? He pulled back His shirt and He showed the scars in His body and His life. And He let His disciples see His wounds. So many of us go around in our life scarred and wounded and we're not willing to show anybody. That was not the life of our Lord. He was willing to let people see his scars, his pain, where he had been hurt. But do you know what a scar is? It's proof of healing. And Jesus allowed them to see his hurt and his healing. And that is what brings us eternal life. Now let me ask you a question. Question number one, what have you done with Jesus? You sit here this morning in either one or two categories. Either you have believed on him for eternal life or you haven't. We don't shame anyone who hasn't, but we do challenge you 
go to God's word and answer the two questions about the gospel of John that I ask. Who do they say he is? Who does Jesus say he is? And then come back and start praying and asking God, Lord, if you are really who you say you are in this book, then open it up and show me who you are. I challenge you to be honest and do that. Honestly, sincerely. Lord, show me who you are. And he will do for you exactly like he did to me and open your blinded eyes to the truth and lead you to eternal life. If you are a believer in Jesus and you've trusted him for eternal life this morning, let me tell you something. You have the greatest gift ever. Our blessings have not even started to be told. We are going to have a body like Jesus. We're going to live in the Father's house for a momentary time. We're going to come back to this earth and rule and reign with Him for a thousand year tailgate party and then through all eternity. That's what the Word of God teaches. So this life, believer, is a test and a trial for you on what you are going to do with the gifts God has given you in this life. How faithful are you going to be? How are you going to serve Him? How are you going to suffer for Him? How are you going to live for Him? Because what you do in this life will determine not your eternal destiny, but it will determine what you do in eternity. Where will you be? Will you be ruling over cities? Will you be wishing you had done more in this life? I mean, your life right now is a test case. Live for Him. And never be afraid to show your scars. Never. And God will bless you.